Hebrews chapter 3, we begin reading in verse 7. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That was an amazing event when we think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem. At first, everything looks good. People are cutting off palm branches and throwing them down before Him. People are even taking off their coats and laying them down before Him. Kind of a makeshift red carpet. And they're shouting things like Hosanna, which was a term of praise. But by the end of the week, the, they would be shouting, crucify Him. As He's coming into town and the people are looking at Him and they're deciding who He is. And they're making judgments about who he is and judgments about whether or not to trust or, or believe, whether or not to follow, whether or not to accept him. And by the end of the week, their judgment is no. They thought they were pronouncing judgment on Christ, but if you think about it, the irony of the event is they were really having judgment pronounced upon them. The one way for them to receive the forgiveness of sins and be delivered from their sins was happening right before their eyes. And they were rejecting it. They were rejecting Him. Well, the same thing is happening in the book of Hebrews. As we look at the book of Hebrews and we come to this point in the passage, the people are making a judgment about Jesus. These are people that have said, yes, we want Christ. They've accepted Christ. They put their faith in Him. And the writer thinks that they have legitimately done so. In fact, very shortly, he's going to say, you know what, I, I think good things of you. Things that support salvation. But they're not acting like it at the moment. They're, they're teetering on whether to walk away from Christ, turn their back on Christ, and go back to the old Judaism, go back to the temple and the sacrificial system, and to walk away from the Savior. And so he's warning them at this point. He's saying, look, if you can do that, Jesus isn't the one being judged here. If you're going to judge that Jesus is not who he said he was, not who even you said he was a little while ago, and go back, you're going to turn your back on him, then the judgment's really not about Jesus. The judgment is upon you. This passage, again, starts, with the, starts out with the word therefore, based on the things that he just said right before that. And what has he talked about? He's talked about the faithfulness of Christ, comparing him to Moses. He says, look, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, Jesus Christ was faithful in all God's house as a son. But now he's going to start to make this comparison. He's going to shift from making a comparison between Moses and Jesus. And now he's going to make a comparison between these Christians and the Israelites that were led out of Egypt by Moses. And he's saying, look, we look at Jesus and we can see that he was faithful just as Moses was faithful. But you're not being faithful. You're considering turning your back on Christ. You're, you're not like Moses. And it's pointing back to Moses. You're not like Moses who was faithful. You're like the children of Israel. For 40 years they turned their back on God. When you think back to that time period, Moses goes up on top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, 
the Israelites say, you know what, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Let's make for ourselves our own gods. And they melted down their jewelry that they brought out of Egypt, and they made a golden calf to worship. And they said, you are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. Before Moses even gets down off the mountain with the commandments, they're already breaking them. First commandment is, you'll have no other gods before me. This person is saying, we have such a greater than Moses that was here. Jesus, the very Son of God. You're doing even worse if you turn your back on Moses. The people rebelled against God on a number of different occasions out in the wilderness. In fact, it was just kind of almost continual. There was, they finally came up to a point where they said, you know what? We're not going into that promised land. It's full of big people there that we don't feel like we can beat. We were better off in Egypt. You brought us out in the wilderness to kill our children. And God says, because of that, your children are going to go into the promised land, but not until every one of you are dead. It would take 40 years for that to happen. And so these people, through their rejection of God, they ruled themselves out of the promised land. So God says, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. He repeats it several times through this chapter and chapter 4, that they would not enter his rest. And we're going to consider entering God's rest. Well, as we do that, I just want to kind of follow the flow of thought through the passage. The first thing we see about entering God's rest is the condition. The condition for entering God's rest. It says in verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, he gave, them a, he gave them a condition for entering into his rest. We receive that rest if we hold fast. It also is repeated again when we get up to verse 14. He says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, it's as we mentioned last week, it is the nature of faith to remain faithful. It is the condition of our salvation that we continue to be faithful. Now, what that does not mean is that we're earning our salvation. He's not saying, if you remain faithful all this time, then you will be in Christ. Or if you remain faithful all this time, then you'll be part of God's house. He's saying you're already God's house. You're already in Christ. But what he's saying is this, if you are truly in Christ, if you really believe, if your belief is sincere, then it's not going to be a belief that is here today and gone tomorrow. If you are really in Christ, you will persevere. You will remain faithful. And this, not only in this passage, but all through the book of Hebrews, that's his constant exhortation is to hold fast, hold firm, cling to Jesus Christ in faith. We see it in other places in chapter 4, verse 14. It also says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Now you see, a, you see a connection here? He keeps saying, look, Christ is better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than Moses. Hold fast. Christ is a superior high priest, he's going to say. Hold fast. There's good reason for us to cling to him. Good reason to hold fast. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. He's saying, look, that we can see how God made his promise so secure to the people that he made his promise to that he confirmed it with an oath by swearing upon his own name. And he did that for this reason, to encourage us to hold fast. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. So all through the book of Hebrews, it encourages us to hold fast, to hold firm, to keep our confidence, our faith that we entered into with Christ to keep that firm 
unto the end. And he's saying, look, if you're a legitimate Christian, if you are real, you'll do it. You'll persevere. Even in spite of the things that they were suffering and going through, they would hold fast. So that is the condition. As we look at this and consider this idea of this condition of remaining faithful, let's see what it's in contrast to within the passage because he, he shows it in contrast to several things. Uh, the first thing he shows it in contrast to is the people that provoke God. Notice in verse 10. It says, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. You know, as they provoked God, as we look back at that incident, Look back, if we look back in Numbers chapter 14, and we see in verse 4, it's an astounding uh, statement they, they make. So they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So they've just rejected the idea of going into the promised land. And they said, you know what? We hate it out here in the wilderness. Well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get rid of Moses and we're going to get a, let's pick our own leader and who's going to lead us back to Egypt. Isn't that hilarious? You know, we tend to do that in our life. When we get, we can go through tough times, hard times. Later on in your life, you look back at those times and you kind of tend to remember more of the good things than you do the bad things. And you look back on this day, like the good old days and the nostalgia. And you forget the fact that when you were there, you didn't really care for it that much. That's what these people were doing. They were in slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage there. They, they weren't living in the lives of luxury. They weren't vacationing on the Nile. They were treated harshly. In fact, God came and delivered them because of the cry of His people, crying out to the injustice that they were suffering under the slavery to Pharaoh. And they said, let's go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? Can you imagine why God would be provoked the way that He was? It's crazy. And so that's the contrary to what we want to be. We want to be those people that hold fast to God. Not those people that provoke him. Also, in contrast to that, we see that they are facing the wrath of God. As we look in verse 11, it says, God says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Also, he repeats it again in chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so these are people that face the wrath of God. And that's the position that we're in. Throughout the book, he will tell us, look, we, we need to be fearful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if we provoke Him by turning our back on His Son, that's not something that He takes lightly. That places us, that recognizes that we are underneath God's wrath. Just like Jesus said, and whoever believes in Him uh, has life, but whoever does not believe in Him does not have life, but the wrath of God abides upon Him. We cannot turn our back on the source of our salvation and expect not to face the wrath of God. So that is in contrast to holding fast as well. And then finally, they were refused entrance into his rest. These people did not get to go into the promised land. Now the promised land is a type or a picture of heaven. And so for us to look at that and consider the idea they're not allowed into the promised land because of their unbelief, because of their hardness of heart, they were kept from entering God's rest, kept from entering God's salvation. Well, that's what is in contrast to holding fast. In other words, the point that he's making to them is this. If we hold fast, if we hold firm our confession that we had from the beginning, then that demonstrates that we are genuinely part of God's house. We are genuinely in Christ. We're delivered from those things. If we can turn our back on Christ and walk away from Him, then we're not genuine in our faith, which means that we're provoking God, we're still under His wrath, and we have no hope 
of entering into his rest. As we go on from there, what is the cause of all this? Why do people do this? Why are we tempted to turn away from Christ who has provided for us for so much? The first thing that we notice is that if you are tempted to fall away or if you fall it away, it is because of a hardening of your heart. In fact, all through this passage, we see this issue of the heart coming to the surface. Notice the different places to use it here. Verse 8, he says, Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. And then down in verse 10, it says, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then again in verse 14 or verse 15, he quotes and says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then, you know what, on into chapter 4 and verse 7, he'll quote the same passage again. And he says, look, those children of Israel, God brought them out. He was providing for them. He was taking care of them, even in the wilderness. He's leading them to the promised land and promises them victory over their enemies. I'm going to take you into this place where the houses are already built, the wells are already dug, the crops are already on the trees and in the fields, and you're going to have it great. And because of the hardness of their heart, they turn away from that. And they reject him. And he's saying, look, it's, if, if, you're, if you turn your back on Christ, it's not saying very much about him. It's saying a lot about you. That your heart is calloused. That your heart is, that your heart is hard. That's what happens. We tend, to, we tend to kind of get in our mind what we want. We're like a little child sometimes. You know, little children, they, they get something that they want. They want this object. They want this toy. And it's time, it's the will of their parents for them to do something else. And the parents say, no, you can't do that right now. We're going to do this. And the child will stomp and scream and throw a fit. And they don't even care who's watching. And they will react in negative ways toward their parents. And look at what's happening. All of a sudden, they're mad at their parents. They're not getting what they want. They're not getting what they deserve. And their heart is hardening toward their parents. That's That's... That's what people do. They, they get something in their mind that they want. They get this, this pleasure they want to pursue or this, this sinful thing that they want. Or it might not even be something sinful in and of itself, but their desire for it becomes sinful because they're not recognizing it as a gift from God. And so they, they get so bent on that thing. And then when they see in the Word of God that they should restrain themselves, then they get angry with God. Their heart hardens toward God. That's what's happening. And that's a dangerous place to be. You want to know why? Because when our heart starts to harden, our vision, we lose our vision. We don't see things clearly anymore like we used to. We, it, it, our heart hardens a little bit, and then we see things a little bit more narrow-mindedly, and then we, our focus becomes stronger, and it's just like a downward cycle from there. In fact, I think that's why in this passage, notice what it says. If, if you hear His voice, repeatedly it says that. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Why, why would he put it that way? Here's what I think the reason is. I think the reason is is because when you've hardened your heart enough, you no longer hear the voice of God. When you harden your heart against it, you, you become numb to it. You know, it's the same with a lot of other things. Our conscience does the same things with issues. I remember, I remember years ago when our kids were little and we first started having kids, you know, we thought, you know what, let's just get the TV out of the house. And for years, we went, well, a TV. I'm not telling you you shouldn't have a TV. I have a TV today. We thought, you know what? Even if you've got a good show on, commercials come up. You don't want your kids to see and stuff. Let's do other things. Let's just get the TV out of the house. So for, for a few years, we didn't have TV at all. And then we got TV with a VCR so you could control the content that was before, before them and stuff like that. And one of the things that I noticed, and we didn't watch TV for a while, 
And then when we'd go visit somebody and they're watching TV and we'd sit down and watch TV with them and I'd watch a show that I've watched before, all of a sudden I noticed things in that, that were in that show that were offensive that I didn't notice before. Why? Because I had gotten kind of numb to those things. You got used to seeing them, used to hearing certain things. And you just got kind of numb to it. Well, that's what happens with anything. In our, anything that we harden our heart toward God for, we start to kind of numb ourselves toward His speaking to us, toward hearing, toward feeling the impact of His Word. And that's what He's telling them. He's telling them, look, you need, to, you need to be careful how you harden your heart because we will lose the ability to hear. So if you fall away, the hardening is because of your heart that is not due to some lack of evidence. And for this, what I would point to as we look at verse 9, it says, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. You know, that was a miraculous time in the wilderness. There were so many things going on that were miraculous in their life. There was no reason for them not to believe, not to trust in God. But yet, they hardened their heart against Him. And so it was not from lack of evidence. In fact, as we look at it, I think right off, I can think of six things right off the bat that were reason for them to cling to God, that should have kept them from doubting in God. And these are very tangible things. One of them is God's presence from the Exodus. Remember when God brought them out of the Exodus and all of His workings in Egypt? where he turned the water to blood, he, he had all the frogs that came out on the land like a plague, all those, all those different plagues. He brought gnats and flies, he killed crops. And with every one of those plagues that God brought, it like destroyed a god of, one of the gods of Egypt. And so he did all those things being with the people. And then he brings them across the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea for them to be able to cross. And then when Pharaoh's army gets in there and they've gotten out, then he brings the water back, destroys them. They saw all that. Can you imagine seeing all of that and not believing? They did. Not only that, but God's presence leading them. Remember how they got around in the wilderness? There was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It was there every day, every night. And when the pillar, of the, the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire got up and moved, then you packed up your tent and you packed up the tabernacle and you left and you followed it. So God was physically leading them around the wilderness by these two things. They could be seen at any moment of any day, always there, and they still didn't believe. Daily provision, manna. When I talked about God providing water for a couple million people from a rock, that's an incredible incident. The manna, manna, you know what manna means? The word means, what is it? They didn't even know what it was. As far as we can tell, it's some bread-like kind of a substance. If they get sick of manna, God blows in some quails to get to change their diet a little bit. And, and so they've been provided for in amazing ways. And even that had a, a stigma attached to it. Because remember, they could go out and pick up enough manna to eat for the day. On Friday, because their Sabbath was Saturday and they weren't supposed to work, on Friday they could pick up enough manna for two days. But that's it. They had to trust God day to day on their food supply. As they did that, they noticed that anybody that collected enough on Monday to feed them on Tuesday, when they woke up Tuesday morning, it was all rotten. But for some reason it worked on Friday. If you collected enough on Friday for Saturday then there was still, it was still good. And you could eat it on Saturday. But any other day of the week, it was rotten if you kept enough over, kept anything overnight. And so God made them trust Him daily for their food supply. And they still, even after seeing the consistent faithfulness of being fed every day in this miraculous way, they still doubted. The law that God wrote on the stone, that was miraculous. God's faithful spokesman, Moses, that was there to lead them around, should have kept them from... from uh, Drifting and the faithful witness of Joshua and Caleb also should have kept them. So there was plenty of evidence to, that uh, 
to keep them from hardening their heart. We have even so much more evidence because we can point back on all this and so much more. When you look at the historical evidence of Jesus Christ and the miracles that he performed and the church that he established and, and began to build, it is undeniable as historical evidence. There's more historical evidence for Jesus Christ and that he is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh, he is the Son of God, than there is for believing in Abraham Lincoln. And there's going to be a lot more evidence for Jesus Christ, historical evidence, than there's going to be for establishing that you or I ever lived in a very short amount of time. But you know what I found is that people that's heart are hardened toward the gospel, now they might give it as an excuse, but I find that it's really not ever the reason. It's never a lack of evidence that leads to people's unbelief, because there's plenty of evidence out there. It's always a hardness of the heart. They don't want Christ as ruling in their life. They've got decisions they want to make in their life that go a different direction than what Christ is, is leading in. I've talked to a number of people that, that, that say, well, you know what, I just don't know that I can believe that. I think uh, maybe science has more answers or this or that. And I say, really, you know what, i got, I got a great book on that subject. Would you read it? Ah, you know, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were telling me that their, that their analytical mind was, was the reason that they were skeptical about God. And then we talked about some of the reasons, some of their analysis of the situation and some of the reasons. And I said, you know what, I got a, I got a book that is awesome on that. And I, I brought up some arguments about it myself. And I said, you know, what, I got a book that is awesome on that. Would you, will you read it? And they asked me, they said, well, will you read this book? And I said, yeah. Which one do you want me to read? And then they admitted that, well, I really didn't have a book that I wanted you to read. I just, I just thought it would get you to not make me read one. They don't want to read the book. They don't want to hear the evidence. They don't want to, they don't want to know. It's, it's, it's easier if you can say, you know what, I just don't know, or no, I don't believe that, there's not reason for me to believe that, and go about my business. I can continue to run my life, do what I want to do, not have my apple cart upset. It's not because of a lack of evidence. There is plenty of evidence out there. There is, there is so much evidence to the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ and what he came and what he did. And we're going to look actually at some of it, a little bit of it next week, but there's such a vast amount. There's so many books out there written, so many videos on YouTube and different places to, to look at. There's so much evidence out there. It's never because of evidence. It's always because we harden our heart and we say, I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way. That's what I find that most of the time is that there's, there's other issues. There's, you know what, I'm, I want to do this. I want to live in this sin. I want to pursue this direction in my life. And that's really what's holding up the faith. It's because of a hardening of the heart, saying, no, I know God's word says this and I'm going this way. So they harden their heart toward the things of God. They also see the deceitfulness of sin. It's not based on a lack of evidence. It is because of the deceitfulness of sin in our life. Sin is very deceptive. If we look back at uh, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are, are in the Garden of Eden and they've got it great and everything is provided for them, every kind of fruit and vegetable you can think about, and they live in this great place, no weeds even when you're working in the garden. God tells them you can eat from every tree in the garden except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan comes across to Eve and he says, can't eat any of these trees? And she says, no, we can eat from these trees. Just not from the one tree that's in the, in the middle of the garden. That tree we're not supposed to eat from or we'll die. Just like God had told her. And Satan tells her, oh, you won't die. What's the big deal? You know, that's, that's usually how sin is often the first barrier is broken down. What's the big deal? It's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. It ain't hurting anybody. But then he goes from that to say, not only is it not hurting anybody, but it's going to be a benefit to you. Then the next thing he says to her is, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. Well, what's the upside of that? They already knew good. They just didn't know evil. But that's what he tells them. He says, you're going to be like God. In other words, God is holding you back. 
God is holding you down. If you really want to be satisfied, if you really want to have it good, you're going to eat that fruit. Eve's problem was this. She decided that she'd take a look. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see what she's done? She's decided to evaluate good and bad in the absence of God. God says this, Satan says this, I'm going to look at it for myself. I'm going to use my own judgment. She decides right and wrong, God's word aside. And she decides to go for it. Sin is deceitful. It's deceptive. It's tricky. Talking to release time kids about this this last week. I said, you know what? Did the devil ever come to you being that red guy with the horns and the pitchfork? Is he really going to come to you like that? Is that how he'll appear? And they're like, no way. I said, that's right, because you'd slam the door in his face. Demons are going to come to you in ways that look fun, exciting, uh, fulfilling. And that's what happens, exactly what happens with Eve is exactly what happens to us. We get deceived into thinking that this way is what's going to lead to my happiness. This Following this sinful pattern or this sinful action in our life, that's what's going to bring me ultimate happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment in my life. That's what's going to... That's, that's what I want. And it is deceptive, as we see within the passage. It blames it on the deceitfulness of sin. Well, lastly, let's look quickly at the cure. The cure that we see is, first of all, self-examination. Self-examination, because we look at the passage in verse 12. Notice what it says. Take care, brothers. He's saying, look, wake up. Pay attention here. Take care. Care about this. Your relationship with God, what you're thinking about doing, pay attention. Care about this. This is important. And so he calls them to self-examination. Not only does he call them to self-examination, but he also calls them to accountability. Accountability. Because notice what he says right after that. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see what he says? Exhort one another. That's what, that's what we're about here. That's, we gather together to be an encouragement to one another. To boost one another. To exhort. To Sometimes, you know what? I need encouragement. And I need correcting. And I, need, and I get that from you. And you get it from me. And we get it from one another. We're supposed to be gathering together and getting together with one another and encouraging one another in our walk with Christ and in our faith. We need one another. I don't think it's any accident that Satan first approached Eve off to the side of Adam. You know, we're vulnerable by ourselves. We're stronger together as we encourage and exhort one another. So he tells them accountability is also. So we need self-evaluation. We need accountability. And then lastly, I would put diligence. Diligence. Now the reason I would do that is notice all through this passage, he keeps quoting this one word, today. Today, if you hear his word, don't harden your heart. This is in the provocation. Today. Do it today. You know, these things are always easy to put off. I'm going to start in those good habits. I'm going to start in this godly life tomorrow. I'm going to get to it eventually. I'm going to get close to God. Eventually, I'm going to be concerned about my spirituality. Eventually, I'm going to read my Bible. Eventually, I'm going to pray. Eventually, I'm going to get saved. Eventually, God's Word is never eventually. God's Word is always today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of provocation. Today, do it. What He's doing is saying, you know what? Don't put off to tomorrow encouraging that friend. Encourage them today. Strengthen them today. Help them today. Focus on your own spirituality, your own relationship with God today. You're tempted to turn your back on Christ. Focus on that now. Fix that now. Always take care of that today. I know in some, of my, some areas of my life, I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. If you want to know the areas, 
You can talk to Lisa. She, she can let you know. She's a little bit more of a planner. I'm a little bit more of a doer at the moment. We need to get her done a little bit. You know what? Our spirituality is not something that we can put off. Our relationship with Christ was not something that we should put off. Our encouragement toward other people is not something we should put off. We should be diligent. We should do that today. Do it now while you're thinking about it, not, not tomorrow. Don't plan to do it later. Do it now. That's what he's telling them. So as we see the condition, the condition for us entering the rest is that we faith, is faith and remaining faithful. The contrast to that was that unbelieving heart. The cause is our own hard-heartedness. It's that deceitfulness of sin that we let get a foothold in our life. We need to nip that in the bud. The cure is self-examination. Take care ourselves. Care about our walk with Christ. Accountability with one another. Holding each other accountable. Strengthening one another. And be diligent about that. Do it now.